0: Hello and welcome to the Agro podcast. My name's Ed Brandt and I'm from the UK and farm in Lincolnshire, so on the east, middle of the East Coast. Uh, so we've got an arable, predominantly arable farm with sheep and beef there as well. So I'm here to talk about the sheep side of that with Matt and Manry.
1: Thanks, Ed, for coming on the early morning. In uh what's what's the weather like there? Cold?
0: Is no, that- well, it's been pretty frosty for the last kind of couple of weeks. Um, but today it's kind of not quite shorts weather, but a bit a bit warmer.
2: Standard turn, not quite shorts weather, so it must be about three degrees. Um, standard turn, isn't it starting to get a little, a little bit less cold now? They're um, saying Europe's having a bit of a spell of warm weather as well, so it must be coming across to you guys. I think so. Yeah, we've kind of ha- it comes in spells. We had a bit
0: of a cold patch before Christmas, and there was another one. So hopefully, we kind of things are starting to grow soon, but not too hopeful for that as of yet. Like. It- We wait until February, March, before we get too excited.
1: Well, well, this is just just to give an introduction for everyone. This is a podcast in conjunction with the Global Sheep Forum, Next Gen Sheep Farmers Forum. And so we've got Ed on from the UK as the representative of the UK. He's representing all the UK farmers, so no pressure. And uh, so he's going to talk about the issues facing... UK agriculture, which are probably pretty big at the moment, I'm guessing, as, as as an ex-UK person. I've got a bit of experience. But Matt, we should probably get into mm. the usual.
2: Yes, we should. Uh, the Sixth Sense. Uh, Ed, Ed mentioned he'd listened to a handful of podcasts, so he
1: probably knows what's coming up. So hopefully he's made it past the first two minutes and he knows what's happening. Yeah. So the Sixth Sense for all the new listeners is uh, a couple of short-fire, we'll, we'll say a phrase or a word and we just want the first thing that pops into mind either a word or a short phrase uh, so it'll be dangerous six of them matt you go first
2: uk shape industry
0: well, i think diverse is probably the word that sums it up the best there's a lot of kind of variation there
1: black pudding
0: uh, i have enjoyed black pudding yeah don't, don't enough of it really but Burns night, uh, uh, forgettable sometimes.
1: <laughs> Brexit,
0: uh, I, I think it's a little bit of a kind of it's an opportunity as well as a, a challenge. Really, I think um, I'm not sure we've used it to our advantage as much as we could have done. Um, but it's, it's precipitating change, which I don't think change is ever a bad thing.
2: Uh, farm labour.
0: That is a challenge, because uh, I think kind of most people that well, I don't want to answer, it's challenging.
1: The Australian-UK free trade agreement.
0: Again, I think it's probably um, a bit of a challenge, but it's also opportunities there if we get it kind of
2: back to you. I think. Lots of challenges, it sounds like. There's lots of challenges Is that, is, is that up to six? Yeah, I think <laughs> that's it. That's it, mate. I thought for a second there we might have asked seven,
1: but then I realised that
2: I started so we must have to finish with you
1: that's true we, yeah. we, after 150 episodes we should sort of be able to count to six by now but <laughs> yeah, well, so you,
2: you've got to you've got to hold the phone with one hand and then uh, and then you count with the other hand so you i get to five and then i run <laughs> yeah run but out,
1: mate. i've only got five fingers so how am i going to count to six mm.
0: maybe if you just count three
1: so it's, it's a hard one. So where whereabouts is your farm, Ed? You said the East Coast. Whereabouts? Lincoln. It's, it's Lincoln.
0: So, yeah, so it's Lincolnshire. So it's kind of between the, the lump that's Norfolk um, on the East Coast above London. And then we have got Yorkshire above us. So we're just kind of sandwiched there. Ah, and then I, the, the ridge of hills. So I, I,
1: it... I, I used to spend a lot of time in a really lovely place near you. Okay. Immingham?
0: Emingham, Oh, yeah. that's Yeah, that is a nice place. <laughs>
1: I remember, I remember spending a lot of time there because I, I used to work in the grains industry in the UK.
0: Yeah.
1: I used to have an import facility there. And I just remember yes. how everything was black with coal dust.
0: No, I don't think I've ever been there, to be honest, even though it's about 20 miles away. It's one of those places that if you don't you should, need to go, you, you should not go. You
1: should give it a shot. Is
2: Lincolnshire fairly low lying and flat kind of ground there? Is that? Is that kind of where I'm thinking the right spot? I did spend a couple of years in the UK and was trying to think. It's up the kind of uh, East Coast, isn't it, on the top there? Oh, as in, you know, little corner of area. Yeah, so we've kind of, yeah. So we've got kind of
0: Norfolk and Suffolk below us and Cambridgeshire and whatnot as well around there. So in the flat we've got around in the wash, that's the level where a lot of veg is and um, As you come north, we've got the wolds, which aren't particularly hilly. I think at the highest, they're about one hundred and sixty meters. Which, like our farm, sits at the highest point, and then it's kind of quite rolling topography on that wold. It's like the Yorkshire wolds. Um, yeah, it's a bit like kind of the Shire from Lord of the Rings if you think of the topography. <laughs>
1: <laughs> but it's it's not a, it's a it's a nice picturesque area though.
0: It is, yeah. No, it's um, it's quite well known as well. So we're well, not well known. It's un- unwell known. But like, tourism is growing here a little bit, so you're seeing more holiday cottages and things like that pop up and more and more cars. So. I, rem-
1: I remember when I was going through there just how many speed cameras there were.
0: Yeah. There's, they, they,
1: seem, they seem to be everywhere. But, uh, yeah, it's
0: quite a kind of, um, but I think yeah. that's the same anywhere in the UK now, especially if you're going in a motorway. Like, there's, it's absolutely everywhere, but around the villages as well. I suppose there's quite a few.
1: So, so tell us a bit about your farm.
0: So it's split into two blocks. So we've got kind of a, the main farm is on the, the west side of the wolds. And then the, so they're both kind of on the edges and the other the other ones um, on the east. We farm, the farm's going to split into, well, two, well, it's three enterprises really. So we've got the arable, which is, um, forms about two thirds. And then we've got the beef and sheep, which for the other third, and they're roughly split evenly. Farm's just over 600 hectares uh, and Yes, so yeah, kind of that's the main things. They've uh, been in the family kind of four generations, I think. This particular farm, we've farmed in the area a couple more generations.
2: And is it, is it yourself and your, your parents that are running the farm, or you've got other siblings there to assist, or what's the setup in terms of the the labour that's that's part of the ownership? So yeah, the farm's in a partnership, myself
0: and my parents, and then we've got a grandparent um, who's, who's alive from their. Uh, in the partnership but obviously not very active anymore um kind of you get into the UK tax laws on inheritance tax and stuff and there's a lot of reasons for being being that way and how kind of succession mm-hmm. works um and then I've got the one sister and so she's trained to be an accountant so she helps a little bit with kind of a little bit of advice occasionally but she's kind of early on in her career um and then we've got kind of one full-time bloke that helps with the uh, arable and the cattle and then at harvest times and peak labour times we have people that help but i think i said that kind of they help when they're available so it's almost you've got to kind of work do your workload around when they can help you rather than say you were doing this empty.
2: <laughs> so it's kind of a, it a bit challenging and so you on your bio that's on the sheep uh produce, sheep global sheep forum uh there it says you have gone back to the farm just recently is that right just end of last year or something Yes,
0: yeah, so I once I left uni, I did, stayed at home during our summer, and then came down to Australia, New Zealand, on in consecutive summers and worked there because I kind of like the sun and the summer work. And then I came back home, and then I went had a few months back home, and a job came up with Signet. So that's our equivalent to Silifia um, from New Zealand or Land Plan in Australia. Okay, and I worked there for two years. Um, just finished this. No, last November, sorry. Time
2: flies, oh. isn't it? and, so, so, uh, so it's over a year now. I was thinking it was last one, but it was November 2020.
1: 2020. 21.
2: Oh, no. 21. Yeah, 21. Oh, yeah, yeah. No, I keep thinking we're in 22. It still catches me out.
1: And you went to Newcastle Uni? That's correct, yeah. I went
0: up there to study agriculture. Why, uh, oh, man? Exactly, yeah. I, I managed, nearly managed to pick up the, the local lingo. For the time well, of one,
1: time. One, of our, one of our biggest yeah. listeners
0: did.
2: Yeah. Yep, Liz well, Jackson.
1: Our, our number one fan, Liz Jackson, she actually mm-hmm. was a teacher at Newcastle Uni for a long time.
2: Yeah, that's right. Was and, it, and, and six can, years or something, was
1: it? Something like that, but she can do yeah. the whole lingo. Hmm. <laughs> and, she's yeah. from, and she's from Australia. She's now back, oh, in wow. WA, now
2: back in WA at Curtin University, but um, we've had her on the podcast a few times. But um, you spent some time yourself in WA when you were doing your Australian tour of the uh, regions. What did you do when you are here? Yeah, so I was out in
0: a farm kind of, I
2: think it was eight hours kind of east of Perth
0: and on a cereal farm there. So we, one of my uni mates and I went out after there to do, do a harvest. Um, so mainly kind of make machinery work and working on the,
1: mm-hmm.
0: yeah, doing the harvest. But the, the farm we were working on also had 300 cattle, which we both come from sheep farms and stock farms. That's kind of our main passion. So we were quite excited when we found out that it got cows <laughs> and sheep on the farm.
1: Whose farm was it?
0: It was, oh, I forget their names. It was in Lake King. So... Lake King, yeah,
1: okay. Yeah, I've... D- a good, good, good pub at Lake King, I think.
0: Yeah, well, his brother, I remember his brother-in-law was the landlord at the pub. The farmer's name was, was Dirk and Rachel, that was the first names.
1: Okay. You know, Andrew spent
2: some time in WA when he came across backpacking. I
1: spent a lot of time mm-hmm. in Lake King and, and a lot of the pubs on there in Western <laughs> Australia. So uh, McLean, that was it.
0: Sorry, McLean, that was the surname. Good Scottish name.
1: Yeah. Thanks. So, so you did, did the backpacking thing, and then came back. Yeah. What? What? Did, uh, just out of curiosity. I never did the backpacking. People mistake me as a backpacker all the time. Say, so <laughs> "Oh, you're you're a Scottish backpacker in Australia," even though I've been here what twelve years, Matt.
2: Yeah, something like that. Yep.
1: Uh, how did you feel? Like the experience actually, like, was it beneficial to you to learn about a different sort of farming background?
0: I, I felt it was a lot because it was a, a different mentality, really, on how one of the things I thought was quite different is how kind of staff are managed or how you felt managed as a person working for and there's like how you were treated, really. Mm. And so I learned a lot about that. And then kind of in the UK, we're very traditional or can be very traditional and uh, like to focus on kind of how it has been done. And I'm not sure if subsidies have kind of... um kind of precipitated that, but in Australia, New Zealand particularly, the people are always looking for new ways of doing things and new opportunities and not necessarily like seeing a problem, but working out how they can get around it or yeah, and how they can make the most of it rather than kind of wanting to me- turn it back to how it was. So.
2: You mentioned when we spoke at the start, the Sixth Sense, you mentioned with regards to the UK sheep industry, I think you, the phrase you used to describe was diverse. Um, yeah. So, would you would you say, like, from your experiences in New Zealand and Australia, that the UK is more diverse than, than what you've got here, uh, or, or you know, I'd be interested, in it, you know, hear your thoughts on it or elaborate a little bit on on how you mean by it being quite diverse?
0: Yeah. So, in the because we have a thing called the Sheep Breed Survey. Um, I'm not sure if anything similar in the, in, the, in the your neck of the woods, but it basically that goes out. This is when I was working at Cygnets and I was there to be part of that. So it goes out and it, take, it looks at how the UK farming industry is. And so it's a questionnaire, it goes out every 10 years and then it collects the data. Obviously, not every farmer in the UK answers it, um, but then it's kind of extrapolated up. So from that, I think we had over 100 breeds reported back, came through. Um, we've got kind of three, because I mean, you've, you've got your kind of your hill, well not your, your wool sector and your meat sector. Um, but our stratification well, it's called stratification, is we've got the hills where people just keep kind of hill sheep like well, the one you see with horns. Um, then we've also got people that are breeding kind of half-breds. So a horn hill sheep cross onto a, a long wool breed to make a mule or something like that, which is a maternal, the idea is actually it's maternal. And then traditionally they would go down onto a lowland farm. So you've got all the breeds and farming techniques associated with that. And then now we've got people who are keeping their self-replacing flocks a little bit closer to what you do um, in, in your country. So a lot of people, or some people in this country will buy in their breeding females. So they won't keep a single breeding animal on the farm and they'll go out and buy all their breeding females, buy some terminal rams. Um, so like your Texels or in this country Texels or in Continentals mainly or Suffolk's, cross them onto those and then all the lambs will go and the following year they'll go and buy as many ewes as they need to, to come in. Um, but then we've now got people keeping their own breeds self sufficing so yeah yeah so that can range from anything from what we've got which is the cleans um which is kind of from the which is taking a bigger well it's about settled now in terms of how many ewes are in the country I think about 200 thousand purebreds which I forget the percentage right? percentage but it's kind of one of the bigger purebred populations um, we've got the shedding sheep coming through there we've got the New Zealand Romneys having a bit of an influence and then people are keeping kind of all sorts of crossbreds but they feel fit their their farms so there's kind of whereas I think in New Zealand everything's based on a Romney, um, and I think I'm not quite sure this is from Australia, but I think they're quite quite uniform what you've got in terms of genetically.
2: Yeah, then, no, yeah. In part, yeah, yeah. Well, there's this. I mean, we've we've seen some change over the years in terms of a movement towards um, you know, increasing prime lamb operations and reduction in in the wool um, sector, but I mean it's still pretty heavily merino dominant.
1: What about wool in the UK? How important is wool?
2: Um,
0: it's not very important, I wouldn't say really. It's seen as a kind of welfare issue and that's that's it. Um, I don't, and that's where the Teotouch tradition is, is kind of rolling the roost a little bit because if you were completely kind of business-minded and weren't uh, precious about kind of how they looked or anything like that, you'd definitely go down the, the wall route and I keep finding myself thinking about kind of like, how can you justify this extra cost and potential um, welfare issues of that when the cost of it is, you knowing near the, the shearing costs or any other kind of um, instance, which, like a welfare
2: which, instance. Which in Australia, there's
1: a, there's a big move at the moment for more shedding sheep. Mm. Yep. Which, which is mm. controversial in some areas. Areas that have traditionally been sort of merino fine wool areas that are going more shedding.
2: So what you mentioned, you what you're growing there in terms of sheep on farm. Ed, uh, so what uh, you would be, you'd be bringing in. I think you alluded to there, you're bringing in contractors then at, at shearing time to, to shear them too. Is it is that proving increasingly difficult? Like in Australia, we've had significant issues, and particularly through COVID, because some of our shearing contractors come from New Zealand for a period of time. Um, and, and do a bit of a stint around. But what's the, st- what's the status there in the UK for getting access to you know, shearing and, and crutching-type contractors? Yeah, it is a bit of a challenge. Again, there's
0: a lot of challenges um, in the UK, sheep at the beginning. But to be honest, we try and we shear pre-lamming. So it gives us a little bit more of a window to get it sorted because not many people are shearing at that time. So all you're competing with is people that are, are lambing. Um, so if you hit it right, you can get someone to come and do that and I like, I'm not the best shearer but I can do a few so if I get really stuck but yeah I mean that's probably why um, I can shear but it's rather to get myself out of a pickle rather than rather than go out and make a lot of money doing it
2: what are you what are you running there in terms of flock size
0: so we've got this year we put about 600 ewes to the tup so we've got the, the white faced maternal breed called a clin which makes up about 200 uh, sorry 500 of those animals and then we've got a terminal Blackface breed, which is the hampshires, and both of those are performance recorded. So um, we record kind of their pedi... So they're all single sired and then at lambing time, we just go around and assign the, ew- the lambs to each you. and then all you need to do for that is, at the most basic, is you weigh them at eight weeks old, and then you weigh them again, and um, you have the option to ultrasound scan them as well for muscle and fat depth on those lambs. So we, we take that option, so everything gets like two weights into the system and then their pedigree information feeds in and gives us the, the estimated breeding values.
2: And, you, and the aim is, are you trying to grow this this flock size? Is that what you, your goal is or is what you got now pretty much what, as much as you can handle?
0: Uh, I'd quite want to get to kind of the 1,000 G mark. I think that'd be quite like the good place and then stop. There's kind of two routes that we want, like I can see for expansion really. The cattle are... On the farm, um, we run the sheep kind of outside all year round. They're grazed on forage, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, and we don't really take anything to them uh, we, because of it in the UK. Kind of, there's you never that far from a footpath or a road. Outwintering options can be limited, um, and our soil probably wouldn't be the, the best for it. So we do house around cattle over winter. Uh, so there's obviously a lot of costs associated with that, and I think our cows are a little bit of a loss leader. So I think I'd quite like to replace some of the cows at least with. With the sheep, also the grazing we're using on the the sheep is a bit underutilised. I think I can make, if I get my uh, grazing sorted out, I can and a bit more kind of infrastructure there, make better use of that. And then also, uh, there's probably opportunities within the arable side to great regen farming becoming a little bit of a buzzword in the UK with kind of grazing crops. And uh, I need to gen up on that really, but there's probably opportunities there to expand into the arable side and integrate a little bit more there with kind of grazing wheats and cover crops and bits and bobs. And then the other kind of fourth opportunity there is the environmental scheme. So uh, we we call them herbal A's in the UK. So you you get paid to establish this diverse sward, which contains like chicory and plantain, uh, which we've we've grown that outside the scheme. We've on really well with it. So we're establishing a few of those within the scheme. So it, it virtually pays for your seeding and, or your establishment costs in the first couple of years and then if you're in the scheme for five years you get paid to, to do that which is not a particularly bad hmm. setup so we've,
2: is that a government funded government funded scheme or how does that work
0: it is yeah it's a, gov- it's a government funded environmental scheme so the uk has been relatively well subsidized over the years i think over the last couple of years it's been it's been changing since we left europe it's obviously it's changed again um and that's kind of one of the, the bits I think there's a bit of opportunity there with, and unlike in New Zealand, Australia, we often get kind of the carrot rather than the stick approach. So they want, like, our government, want, uh, government wants us to improve in one way. And so they'll introduce kind of these environmental schemes and, and encourage farmers to take them up to do, to, to kind of have diverse areas, to plant trees, to put hedgerows in, um, to keep animals out of the watercourses. So that might necessarily be all of the money towards it, but it will be, say a 50% grant or whatever to, to kind of cover the costs um, towards that. So yeah, so we, in the UK, there's kind of two subsidies, but we have the basic payment scheme, which is on the way out. So I think by 2027, 20, that'll disappear. That was a flat rate per hectare you got paid each year based on a pot of European money. Um, so yeah, that obviously of land price and rents a little bit. And then we have environmental schemes. So those are more targeted at kind of objectives. So if you can provide uh we call it a public good um to the government for that then they'll but the payoff will buy off you
2: and that's um these schemes are were these in place before brexit as well and they've been continued or are these kind of schemes that have been brought in post-brexit so the bps was part of cap
0: so that was mm. part of the european scheme but since we have had well since brexit the idea was to because it was just a, a lump of money that you got paid, with the, regardless of what you did with the land, it wasn't seen as particularly good value for money. Uh, so that's on the by the government, but so that's on the way out. Um, The environmental scheme was, it was kind of, I think that was, it's less stringent. So the, the, in the European schemes, they were quite tricky, and if you got them wrong, then you had to pay a lot of money back plus a fine. Um, obviously, if you haven't been doing what you should have been doing, then it's kind of fair. fair but they were quite picky on that. Uh, the the scheme that we've just gone into was a, is a post brexit scheme so it's more kind of objective led so if you can prove that you're going for those objectives so and then we've got another tranche which is the sustainable farming incentive which is kind of more it's to that's to replace the bps really mm. um so that's if you if you are doing these things on your farm then you can apply to that to have that bit of money but that's rather than couple of hundred pounds a hectare that's i think 40 pounds a hectare 40 or 20 pounds a hectare so it's a bit of a well, it's quite a lot of a drop but um yeah i don't think they're particularly difficult to do sometimes most of these things
2: mm.
1: so so going going back to one, one of the things you said in the sixth sense i mentioned about the australian uk free trade agreement which is only allowable after brexit there's been a lot yeah. of i remember at the time a couple of months well probably a year ago, when it first started getting announced. That was in the previous government, I think, Matt. Mm -hmm. I remember there was a lot of uproar from, uh, you know, farmers in the UK saying we're going to be swamped with Australian lamb. I remember I spoke to Linda and uh, my dear mother. Mm -hmm. And I remember her at the time, she said, oh, this would be fantastic. We'll get cheaper lamb. You know, typical Scottish, Mm -hmm. you know, (laughs) What, what's yeah. the what's the view from you as a as a as a as a sheep farmer about you know the possibility of an influx of of Australian sheep meat into the UK?
0: Uh, well, I think you said when you said about either previous government. I don't know if it's your previous government or ours because we've been through <laughs> quite like
2: a few of in the last. Um... Well, you, you,
1: well you, could, you could have a previous government by by this time tomorrow, by the time it goes to air. I, but yeah.
2: Uh, we well, as me, as
1: I mean, our previous government, sorry, had the question. Yeah. And, it, and it's just gone through today, actually, this evening. Mm. It's gone through the House of Lords. So Yeah. Um,
0: so I don't, I think at the moment, like, I'm not, we've not, because New Zealand is sending lamb to the UK or have got, a, have got a tariff, but they're not using that tariff because a lot of it's going into China and, and those next to the woods. And lamb, to me, is quite a global market really because we expect we in the uk in the uk export about 30 percent of what we produce as well so if the, if the global land price drops it's going to affect uk farmers too and i don't i don't what what is the price have looks at really what is the price in australia I, because i mean we've, both countries have got their own challenges in terms of regulation climates and input costs like if we've got high costs in the uk in terms of fuel and fur you're going to have those high costs in australia maybe using them to the same extent but um we're, we're facing the same challenges across both both areas and we've both got kind of areas we can exploit so we don't really struggle too much this year we had a bit of a dry summer um but normally we wouldn't struggle too much with kind of rainfall whereas for in in your circumstances you're going to have those issues to contend with so i think we should be able to compete in terms of price really and also we we've got a story to tell to the consumer because they can come out and see our animals they don't they can't unless they go on holiday Australia, they're not going to see your animals um, and they're they, they coming walking in our environment, and we, we've got kind of quite a close route to get it there. So we've got advantages as well as disadvantages. It's just if people want to buy, it's selling that story enough to make people, when their hands hovering over the two legs of lamb in the supermarket, if that story is good enough to make them buy British, and if we can be, be competitive enough on price as well.
2: Mm, I think that's a fair point you make too, Ed, regarding the volumes that are available for export as well. Because if you look at the the agreement the australia uk agreement there's a, a reduction in tariff and an increased quota over a 10 year period and if you look at that final quota volumes at the end of that 10 year period if we were if australia was to take up all of that quota and send product to the uk to that volume it would make the uk i think our third or fourth largest destination for lamb and it's just we, get, we i don't think we've got enough lamb exportable in australia to fulfill that if we if we're hoping to maintain the likes oh, of the same, US, China, same, same yeah, levels. you know, and, and and we've got this Indian
1: free trade agreement
2: um around the corner as well that, that obviously includes sheep meat too. So, well,
1: yeah, I can't, beef, I can't. Beef's not going to be a huge market for <laughs> India. For the, for,
2: for the Hindu <laughs> market, no. Although there are 30 million Christians in, in India that eat beef. It's bigger than the Australian population, so you never know. But, yeah, beef's not in on that one either. But, yeah, I think you're right that, you know the the diversity of the market globally, and and also I guess the outlook for demand across a whole range of different areas should mean that that there should be enough for the Australian producer, the New Zealand producer, the the, the UK producer as well to uh, to take advantage of these kind of agreements. I think.
1: Well, it's really it's really interesting because Ed, as as you as you know, we're doing this as a series of podcasts on a monthly basis with sheep farmers around the world, so we. Have we done one for an Australian shoot family yet? No, not, not as, not as yeah. part of this, but we've yeah, we, we spoken yeah. Fresh a few times and yeah, yeah. a few others. But we've done New Zealand, US, and now the UK. And one of the, one of the common things is labour. And you mentioned it was a challenge, and like uh, Australia is facing massive challenges when it comes to labour for anything. Whether you're a yeah. or a sheep farm, or whatever, how how are you finding it in the UK? Like, obviously, post Brexit, there there might be there's there's a difference with the obviously they don't have the free movement of people anymore. I'm pretty sure.
0: No, we didn't. I don't think. Kind of in the sectors we are in, so the arable side of it and the sheep and beef side, of it, we didn't have that much seasonal labour anyway. And if you mm. did, it would be kind of people coming back from uni or mm. um like. So it wasn't it like. That's not too much of a issue. It's, it's replacing full-time workers that we've kind of struggled with, Like we're not a particularly big farm. We've changed the system quite a lot, but five, 10 years ago, we had five people working on the farm full-time. We're down, now we're down to one, one, my father and I. So it's been a big change and it's just, yeah, we've changed the system and it's saved us money in terms of um, the cost of labour, but it's kind of in those peak times. And, but I think possibly we're doing bits that didn't need to be... Yeah. Done as well, but I think yeah, the common theme is it's difficult to get labour and good labour. But the people that want you'd want to work on your farm and help with the stock and got something about them, they don't necessarily want to come and work for you. They want to be their own boss and go out and do it themselves. So it's how can you make that work with you? Really, I think that's what we've got to be. That's
2: still um, that's still a remarkable adjustment, though. When you just said that before, from five full time positions down to two. Um, so, what did you? Is it because you've changed focus in certain enterprises, or are you doing things differently? Is there more? Is there some kind of innovation or or, or, or different pra- practices, or, 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 or is
1: it because you're pricing yourselves in differently as owners of the business?
0: I think possibly that a little bit, um, but we we got away. We, that's, that, we that's, a, that.
1: That, that's, that's a common occurrence. <laughs> you've got you've gone to five, but the son's home, so we can count him <laughs> as two staff and get rid of the other two.
0: Oh, no, not that good. Um, so, yeah, so we kind of, we used to be quite a conventional system in terms of how we did the cultivation. So, um, and the atlas the arrow, so was it makes a big bulk of the work. And we have the two, we have people come out harvest as well. So I suppose it's not all kind of full-time labour. Um, so it's more fitting to the seasonal peaks, but we used to be all ploughing and then go over with a cultivator three or four, or f- even five times, depending on how heavy that soil was to break that down and then establish it, drill it, and then um, go into some like another path to consolidate it. We've moved to like 70 or 80% of the farms now direct drilled, So that saves us a lot of time in cultivation. So we don't have to, after harvest, you're not going over trying to get everything turned over and keep working it and take that that time. So that's probably been a big change. And then we used, in 2009, we had a shepherd. um, So maybe a bit longer than 10 years, but he retired and kind of, we were running about a similar number of, level of sheep to to we do today, but the, the, we were lambing inside at that stage. So we were lambing kind of February and March. So when we were lambing, everyone was coming from the farm, would come up and sit, sit up in the shed at night. Um, so one we did like one night a week and it was very labour intensive. And you'd have three people in the lambing shed to turn them out and make sure all okay, make sure they're sickled. Whereas now we're just outside. And like, yeah, we I, my parents do help us uh, with, at lambing time with kind of the, the casualties or the pet lambs. But they've, they've, they've by the time you, you drive around them and they've turned themselves out and they've suckered themselves, so you, that saved a massive amount of labour for us, really, at, at lambing time. Um, so those are kind of – and we do get contracts in a little bit more, but most of the work's in hand still.
2: So then are you as, – as part of your, I guess, selection process with the flock, are you then also looking for ewes that are good lammers and all that kind of – you know, bit of – you know, better kind of maternal instinct or, or things like that as well? Is that part of that process too that you're selectively choosing? Yeah, so that's another part of the UK diversity is that we've got a lot of... There's, when you
0: lamb can be from... People lamb pre-Christmas and in, in the hampshire people are lambing pre-Christmas to get them big for their shows and sales. So they look... So obviously size sells, whether that's the right or wrong thing, it's kind of holding the discussion right through until kind of April when we lamb. Um, because of performance record we've got this we have a lamb survival EBV and that's data mined from the set so if a lamb's if you have a pair of lambs born how it works is it looks at the um, number of lambs from that kind of sire which are which make it to that weight and so obviously if you have a, if a ram and 50% of the lambs don't make it you're probably not going to use them again and that, and that obviously feeds into to the other animals in the system and the other thing we do is we try and buy from other breeders in a system that are similar to us so buy from other breeders, allowing them outside, run large, larger numbers um, and record them and not not kind of molecule them too much.
1: Just a quick question for you. This is completely, completely off topic. Highberg tangent. Highberg <laughs> tangent. Jeremy Clarkson, right? Yeah. <laughs> you, you know, you had, you had that TV show. What's it called? Jeremy's Farm? Clarkson's Farm. Clarkson's Farm. Yeah. Like, I was curious because there was, everybody in Australia watched it.
2: It was pretty popular, wasn't it? It yeah. was massively yeah. popular. Do uh, you think
1: that's made any difference to like metropolitan stroke, like views of farming, like from non non farming folk? Do you think it's made a difference? I don't. Well,
0: metropolitan, because I don't have too many people that I know in the cities, and the people I know in cities are kind of from started here. I've got friends who are in the like lo- the local town who haven't really been on farm at all really in their life they don't know what goes on they don't you chat to them about it but they don't i'm not sure they take it on board or what they're not too interested <laughs> and they've watched uh, clarkson's farm and then like, i couldn't couldn't believe like how difficult it was and stuff and t- really interested in taking into so it has if that's kind of you talk about that across the whole population and i don't know whether you can or not but it has a, it, that within the people i know personally has had a really pop- um positive impact on on the farming side of it, and the view of farming. In the Although UK. they
2: look up to you as some kind of superhero now, is that what you're saying to
0: us? <laughs> not, not quite. No. So,
1: what I'm thinking is, this, Matt, is that we pitched at ABC. Yeah. For for a show of us farming. Oh,
2: dear. Well, we, <laughs> sold, we sold. We sold. We sold that our farm. farm.
1: Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. so we we've done it already, I suppose. So we're a bit more a bit more experienced, than Jeremy. Clark. I'm not
2: sure. I'm not sure how <laughs> compelling. Um, images of you dry retching coming out of the pig shed, Andrew would, <laughs> would kind of go down with the viewing public. I
1: reckon that would be pretty popular. <laughs> <laughs> that, that, mm-hmm. and uh, what's the other one called? The other farming program?
2: In the UK. The UK. No, in sure Australia. The River Cottage one? No, the other one. That's... Which one?
1: The one. That one. You know what I'm talking about? <laughs>
2: Mario, <Yeah>. Mario Farmer. <laughs> Oh yeah, that one. Yeah, that's that's the farmer wants a wife. Farmer wants a wife. That's yeah, yeah, yeah. They've got <laughs> they, a version. They've got a version of that in the UK. I'm
1: sure. Do they? Do they have a version? Yeah, it's farmers? one every
2: all, all around the world, isn't it?
1: Do they have like farmer wants a wife? may
0: uh, the maybe, like, but it could be on some kind of back end channel that i have not managed to get so out. But like yeah.
1: like blind date for farmers. So. I'm pretty sure. Yeah. Like I think that franchise of the farmer
2: wants a wife has gone around the world because they there's a show in Australia that does like a. A weekly summary of what's going on. Yeah, oh, it's, it's. I think it's. Have you been paying attention to one of those ones? And they oh, yeah, they will yeah. sometimes show a clip of one of those reality shows. And sometimes it's Farm Wants a Wife, but they'll pick once from all different countries around the world. And then the the, the 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 guests on the show have to guess where it's where where it's from. Where is that Farm Wants a Wife show from? You Know, and there's ones in Lithuania and Poland and you know in South America somewhere. And I'm sure there's, I'm sure there was a version in the UK, it probably came where from there. Make,
1: where did we get James? version. Yeah.
2: Hmm?
1: You get your boy on it, what fun wants a wife? What's a wife? Yeah.
2: Well, my boy's engaged already now, he's got it, he's got a ah, wife no, coming.
1: That doesn't matter, he's young, it doesn't big. matter. No, that's he's, true. He's that's a true. young pup. <laughs> <laughs> so, another yes. other question I had was sorry, Ed, one of the things I didn't ask you is how old are you? Oh, I'm twenty-seven. Twenty-seven. So, so yeah. I was going to say, like, what was the impact? I was going to ask, but I think you might be almost too young for it. I was going to ask, what was the impact think, of foot and mouth disease? And yeah. you, I can. I, you, you'd have been about six then.
0: Yeah, I was definitely at primary school because I can remember it happening and like happening around me. I can't remember too much of the, the details. Kind of, we had to. We were taken to our grandparents that were off farm and went to school from there for a little bit. We were quite lucky in our area because it didn't on the, that on that instance. I don't think it like I think it was only in the seventies and that did get us, but that the one most recently didn't get us. Um, but yeah, that did have a it changed areas in the UK where they did get it quite significantly, like in the, the Yorkshire Moors and up mm. in the north. People were wiped out and Dumfrey's. just yeah and didn't country. want to, to go. With them. Isn't was Australia quite concerned about that at the moment? For now,
1: Australia was concerned about it six months ago. July, and now nobody cares about it.
2: <laughs> I think no. I think, I think that's probably an overstatement. I think there's still a fair uh, degree of concern. It just was. It was quite, quite kind of commonly spoken about in the news, and there was a little bit of a, a, a panic at no, one no, stage. There, was, there. There,
1: was, there was people out with agriculture who were concerned about it. Yeah. Where, whereas now it's not in the press. More I mean, it, in the press. Then it was in eighty articles a day, front front yeah. page of the newspapers. But now it's like.
2: No, it, good, it, 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 it was discovered in indonesia and more specifically in bali which is a pretty top destination for both it, you know it's, it's, tourists it, coming in and, and, for, and people for,
1: going it, in and out for on holiday for you ed it's yeah. bali is the equivalent of costa del sol uh,
2: you yeah, have yeah. So pizza, a pizza or something you my yeah 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 um so there was there was a, a big kind of panic that either a a tourist coming in via Bali or a returning tourist from Australia um, would bring it in somehow. And so that was, yeah, there was a bit of panic attached to that.
1: But the interesting thing is, if you look, and this is, I don't mean to be offensive, but if you look back at the historical outbreaks of foot and mouth disease, it's not caused by tourists. It's called (laughs) by
2: farmers. (laughs) um,
1: And I'm foot and mouth disease trained by the UN. And the outbreaks in Nepal, when I visited them, were all caused by farmers infecting one another. So I,
0: th- I think, especially in the beef and sheep industries, in some instances, our biosecurity is something to be desired. It's uh, right. I don't know what I'll like with you, but we have the shows and sales, and I'm not I'm not against them, but from a biosecurity point of view, it doesn't make a heap of sense taking all these animals and then mixing them together and then taking them back to various farms across the country. It's yeah, but there's a social side to get at the gaze of it, so that's the other side. But you
1: right? guys have got EID tags on sheep?
0: Yeah, I think that was 2000. It was early, two- well, mid-2000s. Straight, that
1: straight after foot mouth disease. Whereas, yeah, it, whereas Australia, Australia is looking to mandate them by 2025. So that will be...
0: Two
1: years time? 24 years after the UK. Yeah. So only slightly behind the UK.
0: Yeah. <laughs> I think the, the, like the, for the performance of the recording, they definitely make life easier as well. And for kind of capturing stuff and having a bit, they give you, an, if you obviously don't use them and don't make the most of it, it doesn't help you out if you, they're there. So my mark on point of view is if you can capture as much information as you can while you're doing it and you know how to have look around it, it it's there to be used. So it's, why wouldn't you really? It's, um kind of a tool that you have got.
2: So you're so you're actively using the ID for stock management and, and kind of improvement purposes or husbandry purposes with a flock of six hundred and you are saying that it's benefits in that. So you know, I think the you know a bigger flock say you'd have in Australia, there'd be even additional you know labour yeah. saving benefits there as well, right? Definitely
0: kind of we use it when to wean and that kind of thing because obviously like if you weigh them every so often like in around around that time we're handling quite a lot for worming or um vaccinations anyway so if you every time you handle them we weigh them and if you see the ewes and the lambs are both say the lambs have stopped and the ewes aren't are losing quite a lot of condition it gives you kind of a prompt to, to wean them and rather than just going out and thinking when when should we do it it's that's only a bit of an example or that kind of indicates a worm burden if you've got a so yeah there's heaps of value there for, on an individual basis well flock based, uh, group basis
2: A good, good, uh, good uh, take-home message for some of the local uh, farmers here that are maybe a bit reluctant to embrace EIDs,
1: Andrew. Well, it's, you know, everyone's open to their own opinion, but at the end of the day, it doesn't matter because now it's government's mandated it. Mm. it doesn't matter mm. if you're against them or not. You're going to be using them. So you might as well get mm. the full advantage. I read somewhere that there's a $10 to every $1 invested in EID tags in productivity gains. Mm. So... Maybe that's something if podcasts. you use it though. That's if you use yeah. it properly. If you're not just using it just for traceability. Yeah. Because sometimes grants.
0: you get because get productivity grants, and sometimes people have all this kit and stuff, and it's sat in the corner of the shed, not really doing anything. It's yeah. It's uh, It's knowing what to do with it, really, as is well, isn't it? What about yeah. like
1: last time I was in your neck of the woods, yeah? Which was yeah. admittedly a long time ago. There was a lot of sol- <laughs> there was a lot of solar panels going up in yeah in paddocks is that still continued in recent years
0: uh well, we've got some but like it's only kind of the, the, the amount or on sheds and bits like that just kind of a bit of diversity i'm not i think they are still going up but not in our area because we're in a area of outstanding natural beauty um so planning regulations are quite stringent hmm. around us in terms of what you can do so not not around here i haven't had to drive around the country or, or if i do drive around the country like, i wouldn't particularly remember seeing a solar panel one year or not the next you know what i mean there are a lot of wind turbines going up and especially mm. offshore around this um that's a, kind of a big thing and even on, on farms but yeah solar panels i think they're going up and bio digesters so ad plants yeah around, Well, they, i was at they uni was, a lot they of those were huge
1: guys. when i was there yeah and and australia never they never took they took off australia for i reckon four years Cause I don't know if you remember, Matt, but there was a subsidy, basically for about four years, the carbon farming something or other, which mm. meant that you could pay them off in six years. Yeah, a Gillard government. But then they removed that, and then bargess just weren't.
2: Just fell out. Yeah, The, the, the man fell away. Yeah, Whereas the yeah. UK,
1: the, I reckon, don't get me wrong. I went to I went to. What's that? What's this big show they do in June? Near you. It's a big, big field day, big agricultural show.
0: We've got the show, is it? In June.
1: It's oh, it. cereals, is it? Cereals. Yeah, yeah, I remember going to that one a couple of years ago as a tax deduction uh, to <laughs> fund my trip back home. I might go to it this June as well. Uh, but the, I remember just so many, like talking to farmers and stuff, there was so many guys had It's like It seemed like everyone had one yeah
0: <laughs> well like in australia there were subsidies on there for a few years and for like, and, and feeding tariffs so a lot went up at that stage i'm not sure how many are going up anymore but that yeah. like people made hay when the sun was shining kind of thing and put in a lot so i think that's the subsidies do have a bit to answer i think in those i mean it's probably it's the right thing to do but they do distort the market quite a bit as well don't they
1: well that's that's the problem because once they're removed it just kills the market completely yeah so what mm. just I, I curious this is one of the questions we asked the other guys, what do you think is the biggest challenge for you guys as as sheep farmers
0: um I think probably like at an industry level, it's probably not reacting to change because we are kind of in a changing environment, and mm. there's a tendency of the industry not to acknowledge that we are changing, and I think if you can show pro like you are like especially like veganism or um, the environment, if you stand still and don't do anything, then you are opening yourself up to kind of um, criticism. Whereas if you take out take steps and, make, and can demonstrate kind of action, how you're progressing and what you're doing towards that, then I think that helps. So I think, yeah.
2: It's is there, is the, yeah. Difficulty, is the difficulty there though, Ed, as well, for a country like the UK that has so much, you, and you mentioned earlier around tradition, and, and yeah. like you know long-standing kind of uh, methods or whatever uh, or breeds or, or things that are relevant to that particular regional area. Does that make it hard sometimes then to balance between the traditional aspect and the need for change?
0: Yeah and I think kind of it's we've got the lobbying bodies as well which obviously want to keep everyone happy so they want to they want to, to say that and a lot of sheep farms are subsidized by other income, so you'll go out and have a second job and you're going back to your farm. So I think the average flock size in the UK is about 200 ewes. Um, so there's, you're not making a living off that. So there's, well, in really well. There's other income doing that. So if you've got that other income, your sheep flock doesn't need to make money. It just needs not to lose money. Mm. And I think a lot of flocks are managed that way. So that's what keeps the tradition going. They do it because they want to have the sheep rather than they want the sheep to make money. Um, so I think that's that's one of the challenges as well. But I th- yeah, I think it's one of the. I think the environment's a big, a big one as well coming up and acknowledging that that we are a target and what we can do to demonstrate that we are listening and we're going to make progress on it. Mm.
2: You I, mentioned. I was going to go, Andrew.
1: I was going to say, what? What do you like? I I was lucky tonight in that uh, I had uh, a barbecue, you know, to to celebrate the uh, Australia Day. Yeah. And uh, no and
2: he, no celebration of Burns Night. I'll add. So he's just. He's really assimilated into the country. He's having a barbecue on Burns well, Night. Well,
1: Matt, where are we going? are you going to have haggis
2: tomorrow on Australia Day?
1: Where are we going next week, Matt? Where are we, Where are we going next week?
2: Where, well, we're we? well, we're on a bit of a tour.
1: No, but where are we going next Wednesday? Oh yes, well we're going.
2: Yeah, well we're going to a, we're going to a, to haggis, a, haggis, haggis and a haggis and black pudding manufacturer in uh, in uh, country New South Wales. We're, we're visiting the factory. I got, I,
1: I've I've travelled a lot of places around the world mm. and I am most excited about going to this haggis factory it's the most exciting mm-hmm. thing that's ever happened in my entire life that's a
2: likely, likely produced, Locally produced um, um, haggis. black pudding and, and haggis and, it por- was and, thim- pork,
1: and pork pies <laughs> that's right yeah
2: well, an expat, expat uh, a British person, wasn't it, Andrew, came across?
1: What's, what's wrong with your throat,
2: man? <clears> throat> I'm just thinking, I'm getting emotional <laughs> thinking you're about just, a haggis.
1: No, I just I nearly just, choked on a bit just, of saliva. Just halfway halfway, <laughs> through, puberty, halfway through puberty. <laughs> I, I,
2: I was getting very excited about the prospect of black pudding and haggis, and I think I was salivating too much. And, 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 a and
1: pork pies. Yep. They do a fantastic yep. pork pie, and bacon.
2: Mm-hmm,
1: mm-hmm. So... I can't remember what the start of the conversation was. I think it was about uh, like your barbecue
0: in Australia. Then. Oh yeah, yeah. But,
1: <laughs> so, so, so I had, you know, beautifully cooked pora house. You know, some some Cumberland sausages, uh, from from yeah. Tasmania. Some some beautiful veggies and stuff. But like can
2: I sh- call them Cumberland sausages if they're from Tasmania? Well, I think that's, that's, what
1: a- that's what I was wondering. Can you call because like, geographical indicators? You can't call it Greek feta. Mm. You can't call it champagne. You can call it prosciutto or whatever. But this, mm. I'm not sure Cumberland's
0: even a county anymore. Is it? I don't think it's a good place.
1: Cumberland's a, surely it's part of, We part of Yorkshire, is it not? I
0: think it'd be Lancashire's probably, yeah. Cumbria, that's it,
1: yeah. Yeah, Cumbria, yeah, so. Yeah. Anyway, anyway, that wasn't the point of it, yeah? The point of it was, the discussion was around, uh, I was having a discussion tonight about fake meat, yeah? Yeah. And, And, and the reality is like, that steak was, I cooked it myself, so it was beautiful, obviously, you know, cooked by a master of barbecue <laughs> but i was thinking you obviously you can't cook you can't make fake lamb that is That's... accurate to that you can't make a, a lamb chop or a french cutlet but you can make sort of fake burgers and stuff but what what do you think do you think there's actually going to be do you got do you worry as a farmer about fake
0: meat i am yeah i think it is something to be concerned about really because it's it's there and it's just want to take a, a market share but i think it's quite an one thing quite an energy intensive process at the moment because during it was it during the energy spike like that pro that um uh, manufactured meat type thing became very a lot more expensive than the the, the meat products we already got because of mm. the energy required to, to make it so i probably will come on but you still need use energy and resources to make it so i think it's again it's, it's about selling the story and selling the difference and upsetting up because if you can do that then that's that's the key there maybe not seeing lamb as a commodity but seeing it as like your chops and whatnot for the special occasions
1: well, go, go, going back to it when, when, when you think about that actually it's an interesting point that sort of geographical indicators on food products yeah so like in australia you can't call it greek feta you no. can call you can call it feta you can't it, oh,
2: no, I don't think you're allowed to call it feta anymore now, are you?
1: I ain't can call it feta. But it, can't be, it can't be Greek feta, it can't be Danish feta unless it's uh,
2: Greek okay.
1: offering. Right. And there's other ones like champagne. You, even though it's the same grapes, you can't call it champagne if it's grown in Australia. It has to be from the champagne region. And like melted Mowbray pies. You can't call it yeah. Mowbray pie unless it's from Melton Mowbray. Still from there. And uh, that sort of stuff. But, but do you think that... If, do you think, as a, as a producer, does it annoy you if somebody says, oh, this is uh, artificial lamb or it's, it's fake meat sausages? Does it bother you that?
0: I mean, as long as they've got the fake or artificial in there, yeah. then it's still kind of, uh, it's qualifying, isn't it? Um, it, is, it is frustrating that those things are on the market and kind of trying to replace our things, our product and, and lamb and, and meat, but you always get that kind of replacement products going kind on of markets as well, don't you? Or because
1: kind of on one of the things I was thinking is if you, if you think about like steak, yeah, or lamb yeah. chops, or, or, or wherever it might be, yeah, it's had thousands of years of marketing, yeah? yeah. Thousands of years of marketing telling you this is a good natural product, it's fantastic. But then you've got these products that come along and are able to tag on to some of that product by, by yeah. aligning itself with a natural product, which is.
2: Oh or using the imagery in the packaging the imagery. of the animal and, know, and, and, we,
1: and matt and i spoke about this before like you, mm. you have like a you know a fake meat product that's the worst one i think was the,
2: the no, no bull beef or something is
1: that no it? no boar that okay. was, it, was, it was no boar pork yeah which which is an interesting one because like we have an issue with like boar taint in pigs yeah so you yeah. can look at that thinking oh this is just this is pork that doesn't have pork made in. from sows,
2: yeah, made from you know, castrated doesn't, castrated winners. Well, it wasn't. Yeah. It
1: was just. It had a picture of a boar on it, but it was just actually just fake. fake yeah, fake bacon, which is pretty much just salt and bacon flavouring, and and so it, it makes me think there is there is something there. I'm just not sure. I'm not sure whether it's a true risk to farming in the longer term because there is, as you mentioned before there is such a high demand for red meat around the world from that sort of burgeoning sort of middle-class population.
0: Yeah. Um, I think it's, and I don't know how much of it is a flash in the pan type thing as well, because um you don't, you don't see kind of veganism levels in this country rising a huge amount, I don't think anymore. Yeah. Like it, it burst out in like the January here, maybe it's because I'm insular and don't get involved or whatever, but i didn't know it was happening really this year. I know what it's like with you in Australia.
1: But... Well, I'll give, give an example, yeah. And this is an example from the UK. I was in the UK last... Where was that, Matt? December, January last year? Mm-hmm. Yep. It was January, because it was Veganuary. And I went into Greggs. You know, uh, an, yeah. in, an institution of the UK. And... Uh, mm-hmm. Matt, have you been to Greggs?
2: Uh, yeah, I think we went when we over there. And, uh, going back a few years now.
1: But I remember they had uh vegan greg sausage rolls and they had sausage rolls and and you had this sort of the the row of vegan sausage rolls that i think maybe one or two of them untouched one or two of them being picked up and then you had like the the two rows of standard sausage rolls and there was none left yeah and and so i got a scotch pie but anyway that's that's the reality It's made
2: out of real scots people
1: Made of scotch, made of mutton, mutton pie, oh. and um, that's 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 what we sort of see. Is and I go into Woolworths, which is our Tesco's, and the same sort of thing. Like you'd still see uh, limited mince, especially at the moment, yeah. but huge amounts of fake meat still on the shelves. So, yeah, well, so I, I don't think the consumer is is buying into it yet. no
2: no,
0: and and our levy board of AHDB so HDB, um, MLA. Okay. Yeah, equivalent. Um, they run a campaign, because Signet where I used to work was part of that, actually. Uh, so so we, We've had they, guys from
1: EHTB on here before, in the past, prior to Brexit. But, yeah. yeah.
0: But they ran a campaign called We Eat Balanced, which is on social media and all in the supermarkets, which is kind of talking about how meat fits into this balance, into a balanced diet during Veganuary to try and, but It seems to do quite a good job in trying to engage people on, online, which is quite a positive thing, really, for, for them to be doing. So that's one of the things, but I don't think you like say so it's not every shop you go into, there's always that, that plant-based aisle other than the veg aisle is getting smaller every, um every time you go in pretty much, it seems.
2: Well, it's still, I mean, from a cost perspective, they're, they're targeting that lower, you know, kind of end of the market with the mince products and, and sausages yeah, and those. Yeah,
1: but it's, but it's still expensive.
2: Yeah, that's what like, I'm saying. Like, like it, I
1: got, it, I got sausages today, yeah. Mm-hmm. Tasmanian grown Cumberland sausages. I actually thought they were expensive because they were $9 for six. Um, but that seems to be the standard price now. I reckon they used to be $5 for six, but anyway. But the fake meat ones were $12. Yeah,
2: that's it. And and so while you're why you're still more expensive than that commoditized product, you, they're gonna struggle. And then even when you get down the pathway of like there's this we spoke about this when we had Butcher Girl Allison on as well most recently, mm. that you know, there's no way a plant-based product will be able to have the variety that a different animal can provide within the animal and also the variety across species. Like, you know, it's going to be hard, hard task to cost competitively produce all the items that you can get from a pig or all the items you can get from a sheep, you know, in terms of the different types of products, you know, the liver, the, mm. you know, the, the crackling from the, the pig, you know, the whole, the you know, there's a lot of stuff. The they just Yeah, exactly. They're not going to compete on that. They're, they're only going to really compete if they can get the cost down on that mince low-end product, right? And, and and sausage. And and even then, I still think it's going to be a hard task. And, and you know, the lab-grown stuff's especially, even, especially, even smoother especially, away.
1: Especially at the moment when you have got... I am Like, I obviously speak to my parents and family back home in the UK all the time and friends. And it's the same as here. There's a cost of living crisis. In reality, mm. probably bigger than the UK than it is in Australia. Mm. And I don't think fake meat which is, let's be honest, man. We've we've tried to fake meat. We, we're mm. we're we're open people, and we tried to fake meat. And I didn't say we weren't fans of it, but it just it wasn't worth it for the cost premium versus mm. Angus burgers. And mm-hmm. why are you going to pay more for something that's an inferior? product? For an
2: inferior product, yeah, exactly. It's never going to happen. Yeah.
1: And we've seen that in the Nasa space. Mm.
0: I think probably the bigger threat to the meat industry people dropping meat out say two meals a week and just having like and not having a fake meat but replacing it with like pulses or something then that will reduce consumption rather than people going out and buying fake meat because I don't uh, potentially yeah like you said I don't really see a place for it you can't have that high end like your lamb chops with or your wagyu beef and if you can't com- can't compete on the mint side of it it's not really got a, unless you're a die-hard person that doesn't want to eat meat but then there's a lot of recipes out there where you can create something quite affordably without having to include a fake burger.
2: Well, what well, about like, the, like, the, like... the counter-argument to that, though, Ed could be that the person that's reducing their commoditized beef or, or lamb, whatever, you know, the, the lower value intake of meat. But when, yeah. they do have, when they do have meat, they're now prepared to spend a bit more for a better product or a, a product that's more environmentally well, well, sustainable. Or, you well, know.
1: And, and the other argument as well is that at the end of the day, if they're, if, like, I, if you're eating more pulses, then that's still good for agriculture as well. Yeah. So it, yeah, it, just, it it just changes the flows to an extent. Same as anything. But I think, like, I look at I look it from my point of view. Yeah. I eat a lot of meat. And, yes. um, but, but I do like vegetarian food as well. Like, if I go to an Indian, yeah. although I'm not going to. As as you know, Matt, I'm not going to India for a while after I had a esophageal incident with a naan bread, uh, which which meant I couldn't eat for a week and a half. But <laughs> and that's a story for another day. But the, the reality <laughs> is, though, that Indian vegetarian food is much better than Indian meat food. Yeah, we've had a discussion before, Matt. Although you lead on the mm-hmm. be Indian because you're allergic to ghee.
2: Yeah, no, it doesn't get.
1: I, I like Indian food, but it doesn't
2: agree with me. Yeah. <laughs> And it's not the spice that's the problem; it's the guy that sends me. Um, yeah, it's not 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 the best the next day. Less
1: I won't get. I, I won't get any more any
2: more descriptors with that one. Yeah.
1: Right. Well, we've been on for nearly an hour now. Yeah. Well, there you go. If if, oh. if, if not an hour, Ed, is there anything more you want to add? Any lessons for the sheep world?
0: Um. I think just kind of try and be positive where you can and tell your story, really. it's That's kind of how you can make a difference. Like, don't be afraid of change, perhaps, but go into it with your eyes wide open, tell your story, and kind of, oh, this is one reason I did this, really, to try and get your voice out there. And I mean, I imagine it's a fairly agricultural um, audience here, but yeah, try and get your views heard, maybe.
1: Uh, look, it's, it's, a, it's a mixed audience. Yeah. Ma- mainly agricultural. <laughs> and, uh, but yeah but but for, for for us it's more interesting for us to hear like even though i'm british i've spent most of my career in australia now and so it's even yeah. good for me to hear about what's happening in the uk and good to hear like we had a uh, a podcast with a farmer from texas we got a farmer in canada next month and it's interesting to hear about the challenges but what's most interesting for me is how similar the challenges Simi- are. Yeah, race, yeah. that Absolutely. doesn't matter whether you're Texas, New Zealand, Australia the challenges are pretty goddamn sort of similar.
0: Mm. Yeah we even had like a dry summer challenge this year like it was uh, for nothing compared to you guys but <laughs> did, it, did you hear you, about
1: you, Your dry summer is probably the same as a wet summer in, uh, in Australia but
0: <laughs> I think because we're not set up for it it felt quite bad. Because all, all our crops and everything, nothing is geared towards, like, it didn't rain from February until end of August here, and it was mm. like 30 mm. degrees. Well, you had, summer, some, so... you,
1: you had some mad temperatures in August and September. Yeah. Like, like talking, pretty... to my, talking to my parents, they were just like, this is crazy.
2: You would have run out of handkerchiefs to put on top of your head uh, in those hot days, I would have thought.
0: Yeah, luckily we had the, our bathing suits to go into the sea with.
1: <laughs> run out of Mr. Whippy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Right, well, we'll probably leave it there, and I don't want to yeah. take up it, because it's, well, it's coming up for ten o'clock. Ten, ten
2: o'clock, so you got—I'm sure you got plenty you'll, of fantastic. You'll,
1: you'll, to... you'll have scones and scones and tea by to have soon, and that must be afternoon some, tea. Mud, yeah, I got that must, must, be, in. must be some cricket to watch or something. And uh, it's not quite the weather for that, I don't think. Yeah, outside, but uh, yeah. it was—it's uh, good to chat. It's really interesting to hear hear, hear what the, what the issues are facing you. Isn't you?
0: for having me it's been really interesting to talk to you guys so it's been great
2: that's fabulous so thanks for your insights ed and um we'll see you when you've got nothing
1: done